6.5 million deaths and 20 million people wounded. In World War II, there were 60 million deaths and 25 million wounded. In Mao's China, there was 45 million deaths. In Stalin's Russia, they estimate there was over 20 million deaths. In this world, people will stop at nothing to have power and authority, to think that they are in charge and that there is no higher power. Whether it's Stalin or Mao or Hitler, they all believe themselves to be the highest power, that the book stopped with them, that there was no higher throne, and there certainly was no other god but them. And this sort of thinking isn't just confined to the past. Just recently I was told about the Philippine president who decided to call God stupid. He then went on to say that he would even step down from his presidency if anyone could prove that God actually existed. As people in this world, we often crave power and a God-like status. We seek to topple God and his pretended throne and place ourselves there. And this is what the psalmist is questioning in Psalm 2. He can't understand why people rebel against God. You see, this psalm is all about God. It's all about God and his king and his authority. Today we're going to see that to have the blessed life we talked about last week, to be in that assembly of the righteous, we're going to need to be right with God's king. We're going to see that blessing comes through taking refuge in God's anointed king. So let's dive into our first point. Futile rebellion. Futile rebellion. Just look down at verse 1 with me. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist starts with a key word. Why? Why? The author cannot understand the motives or the reasoning for the actions of these nations, of these peoples of the earth. His first statement is, why do they do it? Why do they plot? Why do they conspire in vain? He is confused why they can't see how fruitless, how senseless their actions really are. And what are those actions? Look down at verse 2 with me. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Their actions fundamentally are a rebellion against God, a rebellion against his chosen king. And notice with me a few things about this rebellion. Firstly, it's not constrained to just kings or world leaders or queens. It's an all-encompassing worldwide rebellion. It's the nations. It's the peoples of those nations. It's a grassroots movement. It's a bottom-up movement. It encompasses everybody. You see, you can trek seven days into the heart of the Amazon rainforest, and even there you will find people rebelling against God. You can ride the tram to Murrayfield Stadium, and there you will find people rebelling against God. You see, that rebellion that started in Genesis 3 against God's good rule 
was done by ordinary people. And that's exactly how it carries on today. Ordinary people living lives in rebellion against God. Secondly, notice the nature of the rebellion. See, what is it that these peoples, these kings, these rulers, what is it that they're not happy with? What are they dissatisfied with? Look at verse 3 with me. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The world is not happy with God. It's not happy with how God and his king rule the world. You see, they describe his rule like being in shackles, like being in chains. They think his rule is restricting, that they deserve a freedom that God isn't giving them. You see, these people, they view God's rule not as a good thing, but as a bad thing. These people have made themselves judge over God and decided, do you know what? I could do a better job than God. That God's time as a ruler is over, and that if together, look at verse 2, if we band together, that's how we'll do it. That's how we'll overthrow God. When all the people of the earth come together, we can do it. Together, we know better than God. Again, here we see astounding similarities with Genesis 3. Would you turn back to Genesis 3 with me? It's going to be on page 5 of the Red Bibles. Because here we're going to see the origin of this rebellion against God. And we're going to see that what started there is the same today. Rebellion against God always has the same roots. So just look at Genesis 3 with me. And I'm just going to read from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and also pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Notice with me how the seed of the doubt that that snake sowed, the devil sowed to Adam and Eve, was that God's rule isn't good. That he was restricting something from them. Just look at verse 5 in Genesis 3. It says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the great lie humanity has believed since Genesis 3, and the lie that Psalm 2 is addressing is that God isn't really a good ruler. That he doesn't really give us everything, but he holds things back from us, and that isn't right. You see, people think that when he's king over us, it feels like we're in chains, we're in shackles. Just flick back to Psalm 2 with me, and just remember how the psalm started. Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? See, the psalmist is saying we can think what we want about God. We can think what we want about his king and his rule. 
but ultimately it will be in vain. And that's why the psalmist asked this question. You see, he knows that God can't be overthrown, so why do we try? God can't be overthrown, so why do we try? And that brings us to our second point, against God and his anointed. Futile rebellion against God and his anointed. Just look down at verse 4 with me of Psalm 2. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You see, the people of the earth, the kings and the rulers and the leaders can take their stance against God. They've taken their stance against God and his king and now are wondering, what is God's response going to be? How is he going to respond to this rebellion? Maybe we think he's going to fear them. Maybe he's going to be trembling about what he has to do. No, look down, he laughs, he scoffs at them. You see, this futile rebellion against God and his anointed king is exactly that. It's futile, it's pointless. You see, God is not threatened even by a worldwide rebellion. Every nation, every person could try and stand against God, could band together, but it does not faze him. But notice something important with me. You see, God isn't laughing because he doesn't take sin seriously. That he doesn't take rebellion against him and his king seriously. He isn't laughing because he's jovial about judgment or about injustice. No. His laughter and scoffing are at the feeble attempts of man to overthrow him, to overthrow his chosen king. He is laughing at the ludicrous and arrogant nations who think that they know better than God. He's laughing at the fact that they think they can overthrow him, that they even bother to plot against him. You see, his laughter is meant to humiliate his enemies. God doesn't need to get up off his throne and make battle plans. The prophet Isaiah talks about the nations being like a drop in a bucket in God's eyes. They're just like dust on a scales. God is not threatened by people's rebellion. But don't be fooled. God does take sin and rebellion very, very seriously. Just look at verse 5 with me. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God is angry and wrathful about the world's rebellion. And he's going to do something about it. What is he going to do? He's going to put his king on Zion. He's going to put his king on his holy mountain. And the place where God rules from is going to be a king of God's choice. And the I in verse 6 there is emphatic. God is saying, you may try and rebel against me. You may band together and think that you can stand against me. 
but I will put my king in charge. I, who is God over all, who is God of the universe, who created everything, I'm going to act, I'm going to do something about your rebellion, and you can't stop me. And notice also with me that God's answer to the people's rebellion is to speak. God's answer is to decree something. You see, God's power and God's word are inseparable. The God that said, let there be light, is now declaring, let there be a king in Zion who will rule over all. This powerful world will not be stopped by the nations and their rulers. God will put his king in charge, and nothing anyone can do will stop him. But one big question remains, who is this king? What's the identity of this king that God is going to give this authority to? Who is going to be put on God's holy mountain, on Zion? Well, look down at verse 7 with me. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You see, the Lord has decreed something, and now we have the king who God's speaking to. He's reading out that decree. Firstly, notice that God says that this king will be his son, and that God himself will be his father. You see, this was the promise to the Old Testament kings, starting with David and then working their way on that they would have an exclusive relationship with God. If they obeyed him, if they followed his law and meditated on it, then they would have this exclusive relationship. You see, the title of being God's son connected him vertically to God, but horizontally to his people. As God's son, he would have the intimate relationship. He would have a tight-knit, close communion with God as his chosen king. But in the Old Testament, Israel as a nation were also referred to as God's firstborn son. So this king who is meant to be a son of God is also meant to represent the people to God. The king was meant to lead these people in obedience. He's meant to be the man of Psalm 1 who helps the people meditate on the law. He's meant to be the one who made sure people were in the assembly of the righteous to make sure they were one of God's people. So as we said originally, this statement was about the kings of the Old Testament, the kings who were in David's line. But I'm sure if anyone, if we've ever read the Old Testament, we see that they failed, didn't they? Time and time again, they failed in their task of obeying God. They failed in their task to lead the people in obedience. Well, that was until one king came. That King, Jesus Christ, who this psalm is ultimately referring to. You see, Jesus was God's true son, born by the Spirit of God and declared at his baptism to be God's son. He was the anointed one that verse 1 mentions. You see, Jesus Christ, Christ literally means the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus is the one anointed by God to be his king on Zion. Well, the second thing to notice in verses 7 to 9 is what God promises the king, what he promises to Jesus who's going to take this throne. Just look at it. He says, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. 
You see, Jesus is going to be the ruler not only of his own people, but of all people everywhere. Over every single nation on earth, Jesus is going to be king. See, we started the psalm with many kings and many rulers and many leaders, and now we're being told there's going to be one king. All these rulers stood against God, but he's going to put his king in charge. It's going to be one ruler, one king, one son, Jesus Christ. And this promise, again, of Jesus ruling over the nations is echoed in Ephesians 1. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. And what was that will? What was God's plan through Christ? Well, Paul tells us to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, under Jesus the King. The apostle is speaking of that day when Jesus is going to be revealed to be that king, to be that one ruler over everyone, to be that God's anointed king, the one who's going to rule over creation, where everything, every power and every king will be under him. Well, the third thing to notice in verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 2 is what Jesus is going to do. What is this man's kingship going to be like? What are the consequences of his rule? Look down at verse 9 with me. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The message here is that judgment is coming. I wonder what you were thinking when I read out all those statistics at the start. So many people killed on both sides of the war. So many people killed or tortured under the rule of evil people. We're right to ask the question, is there no justice or judgment for the wickedness that we see in our world? Well, thankfully, Psalm 2 gives us the answer that that one day good King Jesus will be revealed, that he will judge everyone, everyone who rebels against him, everyone who commits an injustice, We'll have to give an account before good King Jesus. All those nations who stood against him, all those peoples who banded together and thought they could overthrow God will face the right punishment. The psalm tells us they are going to be broken like pottery, broken by an iron rod. The frail pottery will be smashed to pieces. This is stark language. It's there to describe the overwhelming judgment of God against those who stand against him. How can pottery stand in the face of iron? The message is clear. They're not going to get away with their rebellion. One day, justice will reign when Jesus judges those who oppose him. And that leads us to our third point. We'll end in judgment or refuge. Futile rebellion against God and his anointed will end in judgment or refuge. Look down at verse 10 with me. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. No, that verse 10 starts with a therefore. The psalmist is saying that because of what has already been said, because that one day Jesus is going to be revealed to be the king over all, 
Because one day he's going to judge the nations. You need to be wise. Not only do you need to be wise, but you need to be warned. You see, the psalmist is coming full circle. You need to be warned, you kings, you peoples. Because like I said at the start of the psalm, your rebellion is in vain. Jesus is going to be king, whether we like it or not. You see, the kings and the rulers are the ones leading the people against God. These people need to be wise and not live in that foolish, vain rebellion. These people need to heed the words of verse 11, where it says, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. The right response to God and his King Jesus is to serve with fear, to celebrate their rule with trembling. I don't know what you think when you hear those words, but I don't think we're meant to picture a reluctant servitude, a slavery. We're meant to picture a li- living with God and Jesus as our King in a way where we remember who He is. We remember God's identity, that He isn't a God to be taken lightheartedly. He isn't to be quarreled with. He isn't a God who can be messed about. He isn't a God who can be fooled with. He isn't a God who can be overthrown. We've been studying the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews tells us that God is a consuming fire. God is a God of infinite power, terrifying power. The kings addressed here need to show the right reverence and respect for who God is and for who his son is, King Jesus. Just look down at verse 12 with me. It tells us, kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the psalm actually ends in a very similar way to how we ended last week in Psalm 1. We have fundamentally a choice at the end of the psalm. We're presented with two opposing options. Firstly, we can kiss the sun. We can take refuge in him. Or secondly, we can go our own way, being our own ruler and finding ourselves facing destruction. So what does it mean when it says, kiss the sun? Well, this is an action of respect and service. It was most likely referring to kissing the ring of the finger of the king. It's a declaration that the son is king, that Jesus is king, and I'm beneath him. And that is fundamentally the Christian message that we need Jesus, and we need to serve him as our king and our Lord. But what about when the psalmist talks about taking refuge in him? What does that mean? Well, if we are on his side, if we're on the side of the king, then we won't face the judgment that this psalm describes. When all those who rebel against God are dashed like pottery, we will be safe in the arms of our king. In Jesus, there is safety, there is refuge. The blessing these people have in this psalm is the same blessing of Psalm 1. The blessing of being right with God, of being in the assembly of the righteous, of being safe from the judgment. So let me ask you a question. Have you kissed the sun? Have you taken refuge in Jesus? You see, if you look at verse 10 and that warning, that is an utter kindness of God. 
It's a forewarning of coming judgment. God is patient and is giving us time to assess if we're still rebels, if we're still living life our own way. He's giving us time to turn to him, to take refuge in his son. See, we all deserve the judgment described in Psalm 2. I think if we were honest with ourselves, we'd realize that none of us are really people who live with God as king all the time. It's easy, isn't it, to look at the bad people of the past, the Hitlers, the Maos, the Stalins, and think, yeah, they are rebels against God. Yes, they do deserve judgment, but not me. I'm not that bad. But all of us rebel against God. But there's good news, there's great news, that today we can find refuge in Jesus. Because Jesus was God's anointed son. He came to this earth. And while he was here, the peoples and the rulers plotted to overthrow him, to kill him. You see, they nailed him to a cross and they thought, we've done it. Psalm 2 is complete. We've overthrown God. He's defeated. But it was all in vain. Jesus was meant to be on the cross. He was meant to face the destruction we deserve. Jesus faced the judgment of Psalm 2 so that we don't have to. You see, we have the option today of being in the assembly of the righteous, of kissing the Son and saying, God, yes, I have lived life as a rebel, a rebellion. I have lived life as a rebel. Please forgive me. Please let me take refuge in your Son, Jesus. Today you can be forgiven. Today you can have a blessed life as you take refuge in God's Son, Jesus. Well, maybe your plan is actually just to walk out of here and ignore this message. Can I beg you not to do that today? You see, verse 12 warns us that that will lead to destruction. That when the judgment comes, we won't have any refuge from the coming wrath. We're going to have to face the judgment. We're going to have to give an account before the throne of God. Notice also with me that this wrath can flare up in a moment. You see, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when he's going to be revealed. But we know that judgment is coming. We can't presume upon more time. We can't have a laissez-faire attitude that says, maybe next week I'll respond. Maybe I'll just keep coming and I'll be quite casual about my relationship with Jesus. Because let me ask you again, have you taken refuge in Jesus? If he comes back tomorrow, is he going to be saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to be saying to you, away from me, you rebel, you evildoer? Or maybe you're here and you think, yes, I have taken refuge in Jesus. Then I hope this psalm gives you great confidence. In our turbulent world, where many people and many leaders and many nations conspire against God, where the name of Jesus isn't lifted high and honored in our culture, it can feel hard and overwhelming. It can often feel that they are winning, as the Bible and its values are pushed to the margins of society, when people are made criminals for holding to the truth of God's word. But let's not forget the truth of this psalm, that God has installed his king on Zion. 
that Jesus is the one crowned with many crowns, the one that's seated at the right hand of the Father, the one who's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. You see, whatever the nations plot, it is all in vain. Jesus is the King, and blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together.